Hello everyone, my name is Michael Hickens, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of But I Digress. And today I'm really jazzed to be with Abby Ishola, who is a New York Emmy Award nominated multimedia and broadcast journalist, as well as a former producer at CUNY TV, CUNY TV, a graduate of the Craig Newmark School of Journalism at City University of New York, a graduate also of the Fashion Institute of Technology, AKA FIT, um, and an entrepreneur and author. She is notably the author of the forthcoming novel from HarperCollins called Patience is a Subtle Thief. Abby, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. I'm interested, your career um, at one point was really focused around fashion and beauty and in particular issues around what we um, in, you know, in the Western world think of as what is classic beauty and, and how that impacts people who don't fit into that stereotype. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how that relates to journalism and fiction writing and sort of the, the arc of your career? Sure. Um, well, what I would say is that, you know, the issue around beauty and classic beauty and beauty standards, that has been my life in terms of, you know, growing up as a dark-skinned Black woman um, in Miami. That was one of the obstacles I faced. Um, and I know a lot of women that face the same obstacles, um, the darker they are within our own community and within other communities as well. So of course, since that's been my life, it's going to kind of trickle into anything that I do in terms of professionally or creatively, um, because it's my story. Uh, so when I started Beyond Classically Beautiful, I wanted it to be a love letter to black women, black women in general, not just dark skinned black women, but to let black women know that we are, um, we're extraordinary and we don't have to fit into any sort of label or mold in order to feel good about ourselves. And also that what is classic beauty and why do women have this pressure to feel like they need to be beautiful? Like there was this whole debate around Harriet Tubman appearing on uh, the $20 bill, I believe it was. And you know a lot of people were upset because they felt like the photo that they were using wasn't good enough and she didn't look beautiful. And, and my thing is Harriet Tubman was uh, a freedom fighter. She was an extraordinary woman who did amazing things and she freed people and she was a slave. She didn't need to be gorgeous. She didn't need to be classically beautiful. She was amazing. So right, we don't, we don't say, well, gee, was Napoleon handsome. Exactly, exactly. So when it comes to women and a lot of the times with black women, the way we look and the way we show up in the world is always so politicized and it's always so, uh, it's, it's always a to-do. It's always <laughs> this big deal. I mean, we, we do it to ourselves, but we do it to ourselves because society has done it to us in ways that can be very damaging to our psyche. So um, that's why I started the Beyond Classically Beautiful platform. And you know, it served as a media platform to showcase the beauty of black women. Um, it started out as a, a photo series because my husband takes photos and we love to collaborate. And as a storyteller, I wanted to, to share the stories of different women who have, you know, faced issues surrounding beauty. So we featured several Black women, not just dark-skinned Black women, but Black women of all shades um, to show what they've been through and also how they've come away from that and how they triumph from that. So as a storyteller, that's how I use that hat um, in that realm. You have... Uh equally rich story in, you know, sort of more classic broadcast journalism as well. How did you, how did you get into that? And how did that sort of dovetail with everything else? Sure. Actually, I'm still a producer at CUNY TV. I noticed that you said former, but I still am a producer there. I produce for several different shows there, um, which has been served for the bulk of my career, actually. Um, so what happened was, you know, when I came to New York, I went to the Fashion Institute of Technology and um, my dream was to be a fashion editor and writer. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was able to freelance at a few um, fashion magazines. But as I was working in the fashion industry, I started to question whether it was really what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be, because the culture within the fashion community, sometimes it could be very polarizing. Um, you know, I always tell people the devil wears Prada is 
pretty much true uh-huh. <laughs> in many aspects. Well, um, I worked I worked at Condé Nast. I worked at Women's Wear Daily, so I know. Uh-huh. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, you've seen it, right? So you know, for me, I I had to decide whether that was the world that I wanted to remain in. So, and then it's also really hard to land jobs in that world because, you know, there's only so many people on the the, the masthead. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the time when you're in that world, you may not be writing, you know, you may be doing other things behind the scenes. And I had always wanted to write. That was always my dream. So I decided to go back to school and I went to the uh, CUNY Graduate School of Journalism and I learned pretty much everything. And I decided there that I wasn't just gonna focus on writing. I was gonna learn how to do television. I was gonna learn how to edit. And that to me was the biggest blessing in my life and probably the best decision I've, I've made because it showed me how to be multifaceted and not just depend on one aspect of journalism. And as you know, things changed so much. Um, people had to figure out how to be self-contained and not just do one thing. So that, worked out to my benefit. Um, so while I was there, my one of my professors, she took a liking to me and she loved my work. So she hired me at CUNY TV for a show that she had just started. So that's how I landed there. And while there, you know, I was able to do Beyond Classically Beautiful and do other projects that were important to me and also find time to write my book. So it's been a blessing. Um, I haven't been able to necessarily work in mainstream, in the mainstream world on a regular basis. I have freelanced, but being at CUNY TV has been good in the sense that I've been able to explore the other sides of my interests. Do you find that, um, you know, having uh, having been an editor um, or being an editor on, on, on whether the fact that it's broadcast and it's visual um, doesn't change the fundamentals of it. Um, has it um, has it given you uh, tools that you find you know are useful in in your writing? It has actually. Uh, just the other day, I want to say two days ago, I released um, the first look, visual look at what my book is about. I was able to mm. produce, um, sit down myself, film myself talking about what my book is about. Um, edit it with B-roll that I found um, that, you know, is Creative Commons B-roll that I know that I have permission to use and give people like a visual aspect of, or a visual look at what it's, what it's about. Because as we know, people love reading, but there are a lot of people that prefer listening to books or prefer movies. So I feel that putting, um, you know, moving pictures behind this, and that's why book trailers are so cool to me, um, it just enhances, you know, the promotion of a book. So I just released that and I got such a great response from um, people that follow me. And then I noticed that a few people that I don't know um, responded with, you know, likes and congratulations. And and that was really refreshing because um, as you know, when it comes to the book world, you have no idea what's going to happen. You have no idea what your book will do, what your story will do. You just hope for the best um, and you do your best to promote it. and so that's that was good for me. That that made me feel good about being able to enhance the release of my book with other things like video. So where did you did you publish this video on like Vimeo or YouTube or um, and did you promote like so I assume that you then promoted it on your social media channels? Yes, actually, I didn't put it on Vimeo or YouTube. I uploaded it straight to my Instagram feed. I uploaded it on Facebook and I put it on LinkedIn. I wanted to test to see which platforms would uh, gain the most traction for me. Um, And so far it looks like Instagram and Facebook were probably where people responded, you know, the most. Mm -hmm. LinkedIn, I I know they're new with video. You know, it's not really a video platform as much. Um, When I've posted photos about my book and, you know, just spoke about, my journey on LinkedIn, I got a greater response. So it's it's good in the sense that I'm testing out what, you know, what platforms will bring what kind of response or bring in people's interest, I should say. Well, I mean, not for nothing, but um, <laughs> we met through LinkedIn, right? Because yeah. um, I, I mean, you may not remember that, but I, I noticed you because Maya Pope Chappelle, mm-hmm. um, 
commented on, I think that you had announced that you're, you're, you know, the, the release date of your book. Yeah. Uh, by the way, what is that date? We should really, we should say that. During- yes. <laughs> well, the release date is May 3rd, 2022. So it's coming up very quickly, um, which is why I started doing the video promos now. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, I've already kind of put together, I want to say six videos that I'll be putting out um, once a week. Uh, so what I decided to do was explore the different, uh, themes in my book or things that kind of, uh, are interesting in the book without totally giving away the story. So for example, you know, music in Nigeria is really important. So in the nineties, which, which is when my book takes place, um, I was living there at the time. And I noticed that hip hop and R and B were huge in Nigeria. And, uh, while living there, I discovered artists (laughs) from America at that time, that had become popular in America, but I was there. So I thought that was really interesting. So I, in my book, you know, mentioned several artists that I felt were prominent there at the time. So I discussed music in the next video that I'll put out um, and how I feel hip hop and R&B were really instrumental in the new genre of music that's come out of Nigeria and West Africa, which is called Afrobeats. It's really becoming a really big genre in America. It's already huge in London and I should say Europe, parts of Europe. So um, I discussed that. And then, because what I wanted to do was discuss some of the themes without totally, as I said, giving away the story that I've written, but to, you know, to kind of touch on why those things were important to me. To so did you, did you have someone, um, you know, uh, providing you with, the uh, a repartee if you were like or, or, or is it just straight narration oh well it's straight narration from me um it's as if you know i'm sitting doing a sit, sit down interview kind of like youtube format when people are speaking to the mm-hmm. camera mm-hmm. um and laying in b-roll uh so it's, re- it's really simple um i say simple because for me i've been doing this for 14 years <laughs> you know editing my own work um that's one thing that has always been important to me i edit my own stories I have an editor at work that I work with who enhances my edits because I, I don't do all the cool things that he does. But um, I think editing my work is how I'm able to write my work well. Um, a lot of um, the people that I work with, they're like, well, why don't you write scripts? And my response is always that I edit, I write as I edit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. So in doing these trailers for my book, it's quite simple for me to just throw them together. Do you think that, you know, a, a writer working at home with desktop equipment um, could do close to at least the you know level of professional quality that um, that you're doing? I absolutely think so. Um, there are lots of edit edit software out there that editing software that out there that um, are user friendly. Um, I use Premiere Pro. I first learned how to edit on Final Cut Pro. And those are very professional um, editing softwares. And But anyone can learn. And that's the beauty of them. Because, you know, if you go on YouTube and you YouTube things, you'll find out how to do things. I yes. still do that. <laughs> I still do that when I want to learn how to do certain things on Premiere Pro. And it's usually like literally in the middle, in the matter of five minutes, I find out how to, to do something. But there are other editing software out there that are user friendly and there are, some are free, I think. Um, I'm not privy to all of them because I, like I said, I use the ones that I use for work. Um, and I think anyone could put pictures with their voice. Um, there's, as we see people on YouTube doing, a lot of these people on YouTube are, you know, everyday people that work all kinds of jobs. They're not, you know, producers or necessarily journalists during the day but they're able to put things together and make them look good and make sense. Uh, I would say just create a set, you know, like a small set. It doesn't even have to be anything fancy. Get some great lighting, which is also cheap. You know, you can get a ring light and mm-hmm. you can use your phone. I, I, I used my phone. I used my iPhone because I wasn't, um, I didn't feel like using my DSLR, which I use sometimes. I felt like that would be a lot more work for me doing it alone. Right. So, Anyone can do this. And then for B-roll, you just look for places that have um, Creative Commons B-roll. B-roll that's uh, free for anyone to use and reproduce without maybe profiting from it. A lot of writers now are realizing that 
um, you know, they have to do so much of the, the legwork that the publishers either used to do or that we thought they were doing, which they probably weren't anyway. Um, mm -hmm. But it's one thing to say, okay, I'm willing to, to do that, but then it's another to actually know how and sort of this is a good start. I mean, it's a good starting point for, I think, people to know. Um, I certainly, I've done things on social media to support my writing, but I haven't done any videos before to promote books. And I think it's a great idea. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna borrow that. You um, should. <laughs> now, let me ask you, let's switch back a little bit to um, um, uh, a little bit more about your background. I'm curious, you were, you were raised in Miami by Nigerian parents. Um, and would you say that you had sort of the typical immigrant experience of trying to fit in uh, you know, US culture while living with parents who were like kind of holding on to their sort of traditional way of living and, 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 and upbringing and that kind of thing? Or was it rather seamless for you? It's so funny you asked me that because going back to the videos that I'll be sharing, another one of the videos that I'll be sharing is about how I feel about Lagos, which is, you know, um, the major city in Nigeria that I had to write about in my story. And I discuss, you know, why I love writing about Lagos because it's, you know, very vivid, it's an amazing energetic city. There's so much to see. Um, so in this video, I also touch on being the, the child of Nigerian immigrants in America and how you do experience somewhat of a identity crisis is what I say. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, growing up, uh, things were a little bit different where people, uh, you know, they'd ask you weird questions like, oh, did your family swing from trees? And like, <laughs> God, you know, they people really ask you that? Oh yeah, oh my God. This was probably elementary school, middle school, you know, when things were different in the, I would say in the eighties and the early nineties, people's outlook of Africa was what they saw on CNN. So there was a lot of like famine and um, poverty and problems. But now that we have social media, um, a lot of people see Africa in a different way because, you know, people are sharing photos and video of life in Africa where, yes, there's poverty. Yes, there's hardship. There's also major cities. There's also wealth and, um, and uh, opulence in many um, African communities. So, um, and, and just beauty, you know, people who visit Africa and the different, you know, cities that have amazing amazing things to see you know so now people see Africa in a different way so I, I think that you know for my daughter or African kids that are growing up now it's a little different and then of course you know when you <laughs> remember something like the movie Black Panther and all the hope that it gave a lot of Black people period around the world I think people have a different impression of Africa so yes in the 90s and 80s those questions were normal. So if you ask any uh, child of African immigrants, they probably would say, yes, you know, we were teased, we had those weird names, we looked a little different, you know, so there was that. And then, you know, your African or your Nigerian, in my case, your Nigerian uh, peers that were homegrown or your parents sometimes or your family members when you would go back, they would say, well, you're not really a real Nigerian. You're not... <laughs> You're an Americana. That's where, you know, that book Americana, the title is very real in uh, Nigerian culture. Um, mm -hmm. When you're someone that grew up in America or you're someone uh, that is like me, they call you an Americana, you know? So there's that thing where, well, what am I? Right. You know? <laughs> so you have to really buckle when down. When you're a kid, it's so hard. I remember, um, you know, my parents were immigrants it was easier for me to fit into American culture because I'm white. Um, but, um, you know, I was, but, but they were European and Jewish. So that was already a little different, even, even in New York, because I lived in Queens um, and in not, a, not in the Jewish neighborhood. Um, wow. But, but um, I remember going over to um, a friend's house who was uh, Indian and just the smell of the food that his mother was cooking suffused the house. And I mean, you know, curry is a very, and, and, there's, and, and cardamom and all these other spices. Yeah. Very um, powerful. And especially if you know, it's completely new to you. And, and in those days, there were no Indian restaurants in Queens, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe in Manhattan, <laughs> but not in Queens. I had never gone to an Indian restaurant before. 
I had no idea what these smells were. They smelled mm -hmm. amazing, um, mm -hmm. but they were also alienating in a, in a strange way. And I, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to let it affect my, my friendship for Vahe was his name. Um, mm -hmm. But by the same token, it was so, it was such a mark of difference. Like I, yeah. you know, and our smells are so important to us, especially when we're, I think when we're younger. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I can only imagine as well for you that, um, you know, what was being cooked at home and would you, like what I used to bring to school mm -hmm. for lunch from home, mm -hmm. people would laugh at me because it was just, same it thing. wasn't, you know, it wasn't white same bread. With, well, not same thing for me, but same thing for my niece. My sister had moments of sending my niece to school with Nigerian food. I'm like, why would you do that to her? Her <laughs> friends would be like, what is that? You know, because because kids are kids, you know, like yeah. you don't, you see things and you don't understand. And I think, you know, back then when you're a kid and you're going through this, it hurts. But as you get older and you start to examine yourself and examine society, you realize why things are the way they are. And it's not necessarily anyone's fault, you know, that they may have seen you as different or labeled you as different. Um, it's just kind of how things progressed, I, I would say. So, yeah. Well, I mean, that, but that's the thing. Those are the things that mark you when you're, when you're a writer. These are the things that I think that you write from. Yeah, um, exactly. So exactly. when did you when did you realize you wanted to be a writer? You said you wanted you you said earlier always, but was there a moment when you thought this? Well, my father, you know, I give him a lot of credit because you know, growing up, when we would stay up at night, he would stay up late with us, and he would tell us folk tales, Nigerian folk tales, and he would you know t just even stories about his family and the way he would tell the stories. Um, I was always so taken in. So there was always something about storytelling for me um, that just captured me. And then I remembered I had a friend who um, she didn't stay very long. Her and her mother moved away from Miami. So it was almost like this brief relationship, but it was a very deep relationship. And we would tell each other stories. We would make up stories and we would sit there and we would recite these stories to one another. And it always stuck out in my mind. I was really young. I think I was probably like maybe six. And um, then I could think of in high school, um, my teacher singling me out um, with my essay and reading my essay out loud. I don't remember what the essay was about, but she told everyone in class that this is how you write an essay. And you know, those are the kinds of things that teachers pass off to students that just don't leave you. Know, leave you. you know, they stay with you and you feel like you have a sense of purpose when you hear those kinds of things from a teacher. Um, and it was just always writing always really came natural for me, but where I struggle with writing is, you know, since I did take the route of being a journalist first, um, I felt like for a long time that writing fiction wasn't for me. Like I couldn't do it. I felt like I would try and I would just put it down. I've had this idea for this book for probably over a decade. It started out as a screenplay in, uh, undergrad. And I did really well with the screenplay. It wasn't a full screenplay. It was the first act of a screenplay. And, but of course I didn't know how to create a movie. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. So I just, you know, put it to the side, but the story had always resonated with me. My husband, who I'd known back then, um, he loved the story and he kept saying, you should finish, you should finish. He would tell me all the time, you should finish. And I'm like, no, I'm a journalist. I, I don't have time to be trying to figure out how to <laughs> write fiction. But it just, it was something that I felt was, you know, nagging me and I feel, and I feel very greatly that if you have something that you really, really want to do, it will become a burden in your life if you don't figure out how to get it done. It will become your greatest burden because either you'll sit around, you know, unhappy that you're not able to finish it or unhappy that you're not able to even try to finish it. Um, and for me, I felt like it, it kind of kept me stagnant, even in my career, because I didn't feel like moving forward until I finished it, if that makes sense. Sure. So, yeah. yeah so you're stuck between you're stuck between trying to do this, this thing that you consider kind of other. And at the same mm -hmm. time, you, you realize that if you go forward more in the main activity, that you'll make it even less possible for that other thing to ever see the light of day. Exactly. Yeah. You know, because 
as you know, with writing a book, you need time to write. So if you go out there and get some really demanding job and you have children and, you know, your life is progressing because it's supposed to progress um, and you have all these responsibilities, but you still have this thing on your back, this monkey on your back that you can't, you know, shake, um, it starts to become a burden. You start to feel the weight of it. So for me, I had to just buckle down and decide that I was going to finish. And that's what I did. You know, it's funny. Um, so congratulations on doing that. Thank you. Um, I, I was going to say, I mean, you know, we're, we're constantly, um, you know, barraged by different influences. Um, and I know that growing up, um, like you, stories were um, a big part of growing up. Um, I read a lot. Um, I, I, I thought early on that I'd want to be a writer, but I also had people who were telling me, you know, um, there's no way you can make a living at that. Um, and then I, my best friend in high school um, was the youngest of three brothers. Um, and the oldest, and, and they were four years apart intentionally. His parents had decided that they were going to pay for the college of the four kids. They were going to have them four years apart. So, <laughs> so my, um, uh, you know, my friend at the time who was 17, um, his elder brother was, you know, 25 and still living at home, but mm. still living at home, which at the time was unusual. Um, you know, people would go to college and then they, you know, they, they wouldn't come home. Um, yeah. And this was 78, 79. Mm. And, but he was writing a book and he had a contract. Now it was for a military publisher named James. And he was writing a book about the kinds of tanks being used by the Soviet military in Afghanistan. Oh my God. Which is super specialized. And it, he is, um, uh, you know, that is his niche um, oh. to this day. He's, you know, a military analyst. But God. here was a guy, he was a big burly guy, um, very kind of, he was tall, heavy, hairy, blonde, gruff, <laughs> um, sweet natured, but gruff. Um, mm -hmm. And he would park himself in the, like they had like a little room next to the, it was a, kind of a typical queen's apartment, you know, um, uh, and, and, and so fairly roomy. And, and there was, so there was like a, the dining room had the, I don't know, he was sort of off to the side in the dining room, this giant typewriter. Um, I mean, we didn't have PCs then. It was an electric typewriter. It was the first one of those I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. And um, and there he was, clackety, clackety, clackety. I mean, I would go over there every day and I would see the pile of paper of finished you know, manuscript wow. growing and growing and growing. And I thought to myself, so wait a minute, you can do this. There's a per here's, here in front of me is a person who is writing a book and uh -huh. he's going to get paid for this book. Now, oh, yeah, in my mind, it was like, you know, he's going to get paid. I had I, I, no idea. I, I barely have conception of money now. When I was a kid, I had no conception of money. But, um, you know, I, I was imagining that he was going to be making a lot of money, but it didn't matter. The point was he was making money as a writer. And that was it for me. That was like, I, I, it was like, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. Wow. Um, but so how did you oh, boy. wait what happened to him i'm sorry see oh, i love <laughs> so uh he's still as far as i know um he still works for um for a while he he was like uh, a staffer for some congressman back mm -hmm. in the 80s and he became kind of like a soviet military specialist wow. um and um then i think that the fall of the soviet mm -hmm. union was kind of uh, bad for his career because then it was like, um, uh, but I think he's re since retrenched. I mean, he, he's always been, you know, uh, 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 an analyst and he probably works for, because uh, I haven't followed his career that closely. I mean, his brother and I, I my, my friend and I are still friends and we're in touch, but I mean, you know, now his, his older brother is, you know, in his um, late 60s, I guess, early 70s and is probably retired at this point. Wow. Um, but yeah, he became, he just became a military analyst. Yeah. 
So that's that by any means necessary kind of story. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, so the question is, how did you end up being able to sell your manuscript? That's did it. You to, did you, did you, I guess the question is, did you did you did you did you solicit agents and then they found HarperCollins, or was it one of those symbiotic things where you found the, you know, uh, not symbiotic, uh uh synchronous or synchronicitous or whatever the word I'm serendipitous. <laughs> Thank you. You've saved me. Synchronicitous. Synchronicity. I, I prefer serendipitous. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. But yes, actually, uh, the way I, it's so funny because I feel like writing the book was so hard. So I, uh, I believe in prayer. So I prayed to God that, listen, writing this book was so hard. I hope that selling the book is the easy part. And I do believe that prayer was answered. Um, I don't want to say it was easy, but um, I have a friend who wrote a book 10 years ago, maybe longer. And I remember she was a guest on my, one of the shows I was hosting at the time on Kimi TV. And I believe she brought me the book that day or she sent it to me and I read her book and she's also an African writer. And when I read her book, I saw myself in her book. I felt myself in her book because she wrote about a Ghanaian girl who goes back to, well, she's a Ghanaian girl growing up in London whose parents sent her back to uh, Ghana. Ghana. And that was somewhat of my story growing up because my parents sent my sister and I to live in Nigeria when I was in middle school. So the book, it just resonated with me. And from then I, I just felt like, and I, as I said, I had already written my story as a screenplay. I had picked it up, put it down, picked it up, put it down. So that was real inspiration for me to kind of get serious about it. Um, she, her book was published by a major publisher. I don't remember which publisher. But of course, as I'm writing my book, I sent her the first 50 pages of my book and I begged her, I'm like, can you please read this? She read it and she loved it. She's like, this is great. You know, I love this. This is awesome. So of course, after that, I put it down again because life, you know, I don't remember mm -hmm. why I put it down, but life happened. So I put it down again. So then I want to say like maybe eight years later, um, I had gotten serious about writing it. I sat down. I pretty much finished it to my idea of what finished means. <laughs> so I asked her to read it and she told me she didn't have time because she, you know, she's a busy person and I'm like, okay, that's fine. So I had other people read it. People gave me feedback and I'm like, I'm, I'm good. I'm finished. I'm going to start looking for my agent. I'm going to start, you know, sending this around. So I did solicit for agents and um, I didn't get any calls. Well, one person responded and the one person who responded she gave me great feedback and she told me, keep at it. And that one response, even though it was a rejection, it gave me so much hope because I'm like, oh, if she responded, I think I'm, I'm good. I'm on the right track. So I kind of tweaked it based on some of her uh, feedback. And after that, I called out to my friend again. I said, hey, if you have a, you know, agent, I'm looking for an agent, you know, I'm about to start sending my manuscript around. So she said, okay, fine, send me your first three chapters. So finally there, I got her to read some of it by reaching out to her again, I didn't give up, right? Mm -hmm. So I sent her my first three chapters and she had all these questions and notes and she's like, send me your full manuscript. So I sent her my full manuscript and she sent me back, she sent me back my manuscript with so much red ink. <laughs> And as I was reading her notes, I'm like, oh my God, I have to really rethink this whole thing. So I had to like rethink the whole structure of it, the whole, you know, uh, basically do a rewrite, but not a complete rewrite, but a rewrite that made sense based on her notes. And her notes were really, really uh, great. But the part of the story that I haven't shared is that over the course of me knowing this friend, she became a scout for uh, HarperCollins. So she writes books, she writes short stories, and she also uh, works with HarperCollins to find people who have great manuscripts that she can share and hopefully they can acquire. So after I did my notes, it took me a year. I mean, after I did my revisions, it took me a year to do those revisions. Now, did you know she was a scout at that point? or she, I, did, just... I, I did once she told me to send her my full manuscript. I was mm. like, oh, wow. I did, she didn't tell me before. But because she was a friend of mine and I just wanted her to read it, 
And I told her, if you know, you have an agent that's, you know, that I can reach out to, that's how I found out. She said, well, you know, I am a scout now for Harper Collins and, you know, they they asked me to look for good work. So, so of course I got excited, but I still wasn't sure um, that I would, that would materialize into anything because of course there was all this red ink and it was from her. <laughs> right. So um, it took me a year to go through all the, the notes and, and redo the story as I saw fit, of course, and as she suggested in terms of like the structure and things that kind of didn't make too much sense. So year 2020 rolls around and she, I, I was nervous the whole time that I was doing this because I'm like, what if she's no longer a scout for them? Of course, you know, anxiety kicks in mm-hmm. and you start creating all these random stories in your head about how you're doomed. So, so I calmed down. I'm like, let me just do this for myself. Before I knew she was a scout, it was no big deal. I was writing this for me, right? So 2020 rolls around, March happens, lockdown. When lockdown happened, I told myself, I am going to finish this in a month or two. And when I told myself that I knew I was going to, because I felt it. And because I didn't have to wake up and go to work, you know, travel time had been cut. But of course I was home with my children and my husband. So there were some challenges and I finished, I finished it and I sent it to her and she loved it. She said, you nailed it. This is it. So I'm like, oh, great. So she said, okay, I'll show it to them and we'll see what happens. She let me know that things are really slow in the publishing world. So I needed to be patient. Hmm, As the title says. I know. (laughs) And I'm like, I've been patient all this time. So don't worry about that. So the other, the other irony of this story is that in the course of me waiting to hear back from the publisher, um, the NSARS movement happened in Nigeria. I don't know if you heard about NSARS, mm-hmm. but NSARS was, you know, basically an outpouring of citizens crying out to uh, the Nigerian government to end police brutality because the police had pretty much run amok. And they had been, you know, harassing people over the years, killing people, all kinds of horrible things had been happening. Um, and the police had taken advantage of its citizens. The other irony is that I explore that in the book. That's part of the book. And it wasn't something I did because of the NSARS movement. I had no idea it was going to happen. Um, so I'm waiting for my publisher. And then this thing happens. And it's all over the news, all over CNN, all over, you know, major news outlets and I'm like oh my god they're reading my manuscript as this is happening I wonder what they're thinking and I want to say maybe a month later I got the email that they wanted (laughs) to publish the book so yes there's a bit of serendipity and there's a bit of like you know me reaching out to people over and over again and you know just seeing where you know the chips fall you know you know what I find that's really interesting and I think that people should find very hopeful is that you didn't mention at all um that your friend made suggestions based on things like demographics or audience segmentation or that kind of stuff. And I mean, obviously <clears throat> there's a, a segment of our, of, of our profession who you know, believe uh, that you know, you're writing to an audience and you need to understand that audience and you need to give that audience what they want, which is a form of entertainment that is mm-hmm. you know, appropriate or the, what they want. But um, and I'm not denigrating that to a certain extent. I've always, I mean, I always wanted to be read. So mm-hmm. yes, you want you want to be appealing, um, yeah. but you don't want, you know, I think that, that that artists don't want their work to be predetermined by marketing people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very refreshing to hear that, you know, this feedback that you got was around things like structure and, I mean, you, the way you describe it didn't come across to me as she told you this is how you need to make it more saleable. She told you how the book would be a better book. Yes, yes. And I think part of that is because she's also an African writer. You know, she writes stories based on Africans in the diaspora and in Africa. And I think when you read African literature, you know that there's uh, a lot of diversity in those stories and the stories are becoming um I would say more marketable nowadays, but at the same time, I think you have to be true to yourself and what's the story that you need to tell? What's the story that you've always wanted to read? You know, what's the story that you feel has been ignored? Um, 
and you know, um, I spoke to, <clears throat> I used to work with a guy named um, uh, Christopher J. Farley, um, who used to run a culture blog, among other things, at, at the Wall Street Journal. Um, and um, he's now an executive editor at Audible. Um, and he's uh, Jamaican American. Mm -hmm. And he writes young, mo mostly, not entirely, not all, but not exclusively, but he writes um, young adult books mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, with, um, uh, with African-American protagonists, which is a thing that he bemoans a lack of in American literature and uh, in the culture. Mm -hmm. and, and he said something interesting to me. He said that one of the, uh, one of the segments, one of the market segments that publishers are are completely missing, and that uh, um, African American women are absolutely hungry to read. They're voracious readers, and they're 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 you know they they buy books, and yet there's so little mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. um, and you know you you know you'd like to think ideally, well, all literature is for all people, but we know that. That's not true. That people have different interests, um, yeah. and that they they want to at least be able to recognize themselves. Um, and you know, it's not, to my mind, not just a. It's not just because you are um, an African American woman that you want to re read about African American women. I'm a white American guy, and I mean, most of the books I've read are about white American guys. I mean, you know, it's just yeah. and. I, I was talking to somebody about you know how hard it is to force yourself to try to make other choices, but the fact of the matter is. So at any rate, my point is, um, you know, there's. I, I think that the book that you're writing, the book that you wrote, um, I think is something that there's a big market for. Thank you. Um, the funny thing is, I. I'm so I was so green in this whole fiction thing so I never thought about marketability or uh, what's the hot thing right now um, I just had this story in my head that I wanted to tell and I felt like it needed to be told I will say that you know writers like Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie was you know she was an inspiration to me because she became this hot contemporary African writer so there goes someone who makes you see that, hey, there is an opportunity for you to tell this kind of story in America and have it be um, something, you know. So she has, you know, of course, inspired a lot of young African writers. And there are so many coming up now. Um, I can't even think of all the names, but there's so many books that I've read um, by African authors. And it's, it's really inspiring. So I've been inspired by a lot of African authors based here, based there, and also Black women in general. So I'm so happy that you brought up Black women because there is this movement, you know, and I don't, I don't know if I want to say movement because I think Black women have always wanted to read and have always been great readers and writers. Um, but right now there are a lot of platforms that have, you know, that have come up um, that are supporting Black women writers and that are showcasing their books and that have become major book clubs and that are kind of like our own corner of this whole world, this whole literature world. So I think if uh, agents and uh, publishers haven't caught on to that, then that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, as you said, there is a huge market. There's a huge market and Black women, you know, tend to figure it out. They tend to figure out how to get their work out there. And um, it's always a very inspiring thing to see. And it makes you feel like I can do this too. I mean, I have noticed um, in the last five years, um, a, a big shift in what agents, at any rate, say they're looking for. Um, and there's a much greater emphasis on uh, diversity of voices. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know enough about what publishers are looking for because they're less open, I think. In, they're less mm -hmm. candid about what they're looking to buy, agents are much more candid, I think, in the sense about what authors they're looking for, because I think um, it's in their interest to do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, might I add, based on my story, I don't have an agent. I still don't have an agent. Um, and at some point, I hope that maybe I will get one. I, I don't know. 
But um, I was able to do this with someone who's a scout slash friend and, um, you know, myself. So I think that, you know, the fact that I did reach out to so many agents and none were interested, one gave feedback, but I still ended up selling this book is, is quite interesting to me. And, I, it, you know, I'm not saying that anyone was, you know, being discriminative or whatever, because I know they get so many submissions. So I wonder how they're able to filter through things and decide what a publisher would want. You know, I, I, I can only imagine what that job is like. Yeah, I wouldn't want it. Um, and, and <laughs> I, I agree with you. It, it doesn't sound easy. I will say this. Um, I was given advice a long time ago that I was actually, my first book was published um, and I didn't have an agent. And um, my editor told me to get an agent and introduced me to an agent mm -hmm. because um, he said that you need somebody who knows what they're looking at when they're looking at the contract. You need somebody who's looking at the royalty statements to make sure that um, there aren't mistakes. Um, so maybe your um, publisher can suggest an agent that they like working with. Yeah, yeah, that is, I would say, down the road for me in the cards. I've already started writing my second novel. Um, it's rough. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> rough. exciting. That's but very yeah, exciting. I yeah, yeah. You, I feel like if you really want a career or some kind of um, continuity in this, then you have to kind of hit the ground running. Because I think I spent a lot of years doubting myself, wondering, and then this it happened and it made me feel like, listen, the only way to do it is to do it. You know, you just have to kind of do it, find the time to do it and just believe, you know, and then also be open to having people read, read your work, critique your work, and um, you be a little bit of an editor as well, like what don't I need here? And um, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna, I, I, I'm gonna ask you something that's gonna sound really naive, but, um, and I'm gonna ask it for a reason. Um, and, and that is, are you, you know, do you feel like having been, or being, having been, that, that, that being a woman and being a woman of color has created challenges for you as a writer? professionally, not as, you know, an intellectual, but as a someone able to sell a book? I would say what I feel the challenges are, are being a person of color, period, in society. Because in anything you do, there's always that question of, will I be enough? Will I be um, recognized? Will I be uh, picked up? Will people want to uh, represent me? Well, there, there's always that question. And we always have this thing of having to push past that, which, you know, a lot of people tend to do. And then some people don't. And I think that's why, you know, I was listening to someone the other day um, and they said that a lot of, I think it was Bell Hooks. She said a lot of black women die without anyone having read their work. And <laughs> when she said that, it was a video talk that she did that I was watching. And I'm, it just, uh, it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks mm -hmm. because, you know, for a long time, I had this story I wanted to tell and I wasn't sure if I would be able to tell it. And to know that a lot of women go to the grave, Black women go to the grave, you know, feeling like their work or their ideas aren't good enough um, or having that fear of even trying to pursue this it's hurtful. It's sad. And I know that, you know, women of all races and people of all races go through um, self-doubt, but self-doubt on top of, you know, being rejected because of your race, it's a lot. It could be a lot. So um, yeah, I would say just being a Black person, period, you always have that question of, will, will, will my name, will, what will they think of my name? You know, for example, mm -hmm when you submit your resume for a job or um, will I get called back for this? Uh, will they say that this story is too urban? Will they say that this story, you know, you always have that in your mind. Like, is this going to resonate with the mainstream? Um, so, yeah. I mean, the good thing is that, of course, there are a lot of imprints that cater to uh, people of different voices. Like, for example, I'm with Harpavia and Harpavia is the new international imprint for HarperCollins, which I think is great. Um, having stories told from people around the world and about different you know, regions of the world is 
is really important, especially now, you know, this world, I mean, this is a global world at this point. We've, we see each other in a different way. Um, the world has opened up in ways that we couldn't even have imagined 20, 30 years ago. So an imprint like this, I think is important and uh, I appreciate it. No, I agree. And I, I asked the question only because I think that probably not our listeners, but there's a strain of, you know, white resentment that um, uh, the, 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 that expresses itself as, you know, how come um, fill in the blank type of person gets all of these advantages, preferential treatment, et cetera. Um, when <laughs> the uh, and, and the refusal to see the incredible preferential treatment that you get just from being white, um, and so to you know, I, I wanted to sort of um, have you express a little bit the the, the 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 real challenge that it is being um, a black woman. Well, you know what I would say to people, you know, a white person that feels that way, I would say that if you feel that people are getting preferential treatment because of their race, then you would need to push past that yourself. Just as we feel we have to push past being marginalized. If you feel marginalized, you know, that's, that's your thing. Uh, I believe that you need to figure out how to be resilient, you know, resilient in the sense that that's what I, I agree. My story, you know, my story deserves to be told. So you figure out how to get it out there. And then obviously everyone has some sense of privilege. You know, everyone does. Like I'm this Nigerian American in America writing about people in Nigeria. You know, there are a lot of people that are in Nigeria that might think, well, of course, you know, she's over there, <laughs> you know, because there is that whole thing of Nigerians abroad aren't doing this or Africans abroad aren't doing that. So I think everyone has a sense of privilege in some ways, and we all have to figure out how to use our privilege in good ways, you know, in ways that can benefit other people, in ways that will benefit ourselves, um, but also not being a jerk about it, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's what I would say to if you're a white person that feels like, you know, there's affirmative action or there's this and there's that for Black people, then you figure out how to be resilient. And that's that. It's very funny that you should say that. I, uh, I, I don't think I've ever articulated it that way, even to myself, but it's always how I've felt when I've heard that is like, you know, exactly, you know, I couldn't put it better. Um, uh, <laughs> figure it out. Um, so, the uh, two questions that I always ask at the end. Um, and one of them is, what is your relationship, your physical relationship to books? Like, do you do you write in them? Do you dog ear them? Do you or do you like just put, do you use bookmarks? How do you how do you treat books? Uh, I don't write in books. <laughs> uh, I'm I am still listen. I'm still. I would say I read Kindle books thirty percent of the time. I still read books maybe another thirty percent of the time, and then I also listen to books. Mm. So I, it depends on the book and it depends on the situation. For me, if someone says, oh my God, there's this really good book and it's about blah, blah, blah. And it sounds amazing. I will go online and get it immediately. Like I want it to come to my Kindle right away. Like mm -hmm. I don't want to wait for it to come in the mail um, because that's how I am about certain stories. I get really excited when I hear it. And if it's something that resonates with me, I want to read it now. Um, if it's another kind of story that may not be, um, may not resonate with me right away, I wouldn't mind buying the book, having it come to my house. Um, and then also book covers. If it's a, a beautiful book cover, a lot of the time I would want to own it. Um, mm -hmm. I have it on my bookshelf. If it's a book I've, re I've read on Kindle and I want to own it, I go and buy the book after having it on Kindle. Right. So it just depends. It depends, but I don't really write in books. Um, there are books that I've read over and over again. Um, but for the most part, I'll probably read books once and mm -hmm. take that in. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's funny because um, one of the writers I had on this um, uh, named Marcus Pactor, and he, he writes notes all over. And he, he sent me a, 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 a snapshot of the first page of Kafka's Metamorphosis. And it's like, it's almost like, um, the <laughs> the actual text 
is this tiny little block of text in the middle of, and then all around it, like uh, Aurora is his like handwritten notes <laughs> of things that he thinks about it. Um, uh, I think, I think I, honestly, I like that. I like that people do that because I think, especially as a writer, it helps uh, when something resonates with you. Because what I will say about books for me, um, I feel that reading books give me permission to do things that in my mind I may have been hesitant to do. But then when I see another writer do that kind of thing, whether it's a style mm -hmm. or um, the way they need it may have done a, a backstory with just one sentence or just something like that. Um, I feel like, whoa, you know, she can do this. I can do this too. So that's where I probably would want to mark. But for some reason, I just don't, I don't mark up books. I feel like, no, I like it as it is. And I feel like it's art. So I, I usually leave it alone. But I, Kindle, I, of course, allows you to do a lot of highlighting. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do on my Kindle. Mm -hmm. Ah, interesting. And it's funny because my see, I, I thought it would have been generational, but my daughter, who um, is 26, um, she doesn't like Kindles at all. Um, mm -hmm. Feels that they're not physical enough. I, I mean, I, I have a very physical relationship with books, but I don't, I, I don't write in them or highlight, and I don't even like to dog ear. I use bookmarks, but and I, yeah. and I love the smell of books, and I love how they look and how they feel, and I like feeling the texture of the paper. Mm -hmm. um, so oh dog earring um, i do both i use bookmarks and i dog earring. okay okay it just depends <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i and i know a lot of people are like oh kindle i don't like kindles i like kindles because of the having the book immediately that's that's usually why and then also being able to highlight you know that's why i prefer kindle but but i do understand being able to hold a book it's it's really great and i think it's great that we've gone back to that versus how things were feeling, you know, once Amazon kind of came in and swooped in and took over, uh, where everyone was reading on Kindles and devices. I'm glad that people are going back to actual books. Yeah, I, I am too. Um, the only time I buy uh, ebooks is when um, they're usually nonfiction books. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like, I, I need to know something now. Like I'm in the middle yeah. of, you know, uh, writing either uh, an article or um, something that I'm working on requires me to have some kind of factual <laughs> information that I need from a book, um, mm -hmm. and I'll buy that book. Um, yeah. Do you borrow from the library? Because I still do. I do, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And in fact, I live, I live outside New York City um, and the library is pretty good, but it's part of the Westchester County Library System. And so mm -hmm. if, um, they don't have the book and they often don't uh, a at least one uh, of the libraries in Westchester will have it and um, it gets here in two days so nice. you know for mo most of the time that's that's fine yeah. <laughs> I can wait two days yeah. um, and the last question that I asked if you hadn't been and I, I can uh, I can't wait to hear the answer to this one if you hadn't been able to be a writer um, and I'm gonna have to throw in, if you hadn't been able to be a journalist either, what would you have liked to have been? What would have been your dream vocation? <sighs> the funny thing is when I was growing up, I was like, I'm gonna be a lawyer, I'm gonna be a lawyer. But then that was just like, uh, you know, as a child, you know, you pick these careers and you're like, oh, this is what I'm gonna be. But honestly, my dream job probably would have been an a and at a music company, at a record label. Oh, so cool. Yeah, I love music. Um, especially growing up, music was like my therapy in the 90s. Um, when I moved to New York, I still loved music, but my relationship with music changed. Of course, by the time the 2000s rolled around, it, I think everyone's um, consumption of music was a little different, you know, because right. CDs had kind of been like, what's this now? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of changed a little bit. And then, of course, music changed. But um, I would say that that would have been the road I would have taken. I love artists. I love music. I love um, uh, people, artists that are different, artists that probably, you know, don't necessarily get their fair share of, uh, of uh, listeners. Um, I probably would have been at some kind of indie label or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I would have done. So with that, I'll just say thank you so much. You're welcome. I thank you so much, Michael.
I'm Michael Hickens, and you've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. If you want to know more about me, please visit my website at www.michaelmissing.com.